What? You mean you're not talking about micro semiconductors at all in your work? Well, one, I don't know what that is because that's not a thing. Whatever. Welcome to Charlotte Mason Says. I'm John Schindel, here with my wife, Crystal. Join us as we read and discuss the home education series. Well, this week, we are moving into some actual habits. Well, last week, we talked about an actual habit. We did, but we talked about one. So we've been spending, you know, all of part three, and now part four is the, you know, part three was the theory of habits, and now part four is the which habits are actually important. And I'm going to skip, and I I was reading, or I was listening to it through the LibriVox version, and I'm going to skip just to the very back of this whole part real quick. So this is not where we're going to be at yet. It's on page 168. And she has a limited program because she left unnoticed many matters fully as important as those touched upon. But she chose these ones because they do not appear to her to have the full weight with educated parents, rather than upon those which every thoughtful person recognized the force. So as as we're looking at these habits, including attention from last week, she's pulling out the ones that she doesn't think are emphasized as much in society. Well, that makes sense. So I just, I heard that and I was like, oh, that makes sense. It makes sense why she chose these ones specifically as compared to anything else. Mm-hmm. Because she thinks that you know, specifically educated parents work on habits with their children. They already do this. But these are the ones that she specifically sees that they are failing to address as much as she thinks they should. Huh. So. Well, all right then. I don't know. It, it, it caught my ear when I was when I was listening to it and I was like... That makes sense. It does. Well, and at least it gives some some reason why she chose these as compared to anything else she could have chosen. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So last week was all about attention. And this week we will be doing, starting with application. And what's interesting is she says, we want rapid mental effort. We need to be able to apply this. And she's like, I still understand that children are children. <laughs> I still get that there are there are tortoises and there are hares. However, they can be trained to move every day a trifle quicker. And the thing here is aim steadily at securing quickness of apprehension and execution. And that goes far towards getting it. The Scola sisters did a online workshop um, this last Saturday about goal training and um, or goals, uh, 30 day goals, 60 day goals, 90 day goals, specifically for this time when we are as a nation under quarantine for the coronavirus. And one of the things they said was, you know, just do one burpee a day, one burpee a day for 90 days will get you a long way. (laughs) So that that one little thing. Yeah. Well, it's something that we've talked about, or I know I've said it any number of times, but just taking one step towards the ideal, doing one thing that gets you closer to that. 
and and she's talking about that too here. She's that quote that you said. She's saying, just you, you aim aim for it. Uh, there's the there's the common quip you not quip the the common saying you can't hit what you don't aim for. And so if you're not aiming, if you're not if you're not trying for something, you'll never get it. Or aim at nothing and you'll always hit it. Well, I mean, yeah, that's the inverse of it. Or shoot for the moon. And if you miss, you're among the stars. Okay, we're going to move on. (laughs) Yeah. I'll let you go Go ahead now. Well, she says, so she moves on to, to zeal. And she says, his zeal must be stimulated. Uh, let's see. So she moves on to zeal and she's talking about how to get the child interested in doing their work. And he says, Oh, I'm so tired of sums or of history. Well, she says his zeal must be stimulated. There must always be a pleasing vista before him and steady untiring application to work must be held up as honorable while fitful flagging attention and effort are scouted. So I guess to, to modernize here. <laughs> but uh, they're, they're scouted. Right? I don't understand that word in that context. You you see them. A scout being the... the oh, oh, like like you you draw attention to it and point it out type of scouted. Well, you, you notice it. Okay. Uh, thinking about the scout as in like the, the forward scout of an army. They're always, they're looking ahead for, for trouble and problems and things. You... Oh, okay. So you as the teacher are the scout for those for, for those fitful and flagging attention right. and effort. So you the teacher are looking for those things and when you see those things, you need to make sure that you're putting a pleasing vista before him. Okay. And that you're you're holding up steady untiring application to work as honorable. It makes sense now. Thank Good. you. I'm glad. It's definitely some archaic language, we'll say. It's not explained. No. And, and, and it's not used in a term that we use use colloqui- colloquially anymore. Right. Really, the only reason that I turned on to that word is because that word is used a lot when playing tabletop role-playing games. Gotcha. Because it... I guess D&D did come in handy. Right? Once. I'm going to say multiple times, but you know what? <laughs> That's just me. Chapter three. The Habit of Thinking. So one of the interesting things is these chapters are super short. And half of this chapter is a quote. <laughs> so, because it, it goes all the way down to the word a lion. Well, she's, she has to define what she means, what, what thinking is. Mm-hmm. And yeah, as she's wont to do, she quotes a large portion of something. So she says, by thinking, let us mean a real conscious effort of mind and not the fancies that flit without effort through the brain. So when we were talking about attention early in that chapter, we were talking about the ability to control your thoughts. And I think that's kind of, yeah, direct your thoughts. And I think that's what she's talking about here is the active directing and controlling of your thoughts to think about something specific. Okay. Not to let your mind flit around like the child who heard about Cinderella's slipper being glass mm-hmm. and then went on a tirade. Tangents. Uh, yes, sorry. Went on a tangent and uh, all of a sudden was wondering why you don't wear glasses. Yeah. 
I think that's what she's contrasting here is she's specifically pulling out the thinking part of that, even though she's kind of already talked about attention being part of thinking earlier. They're all interconnected. They really are. So the example she gives is by the Archbishop Thompson in his Laws of Thought. And if you ever want to go look this up, make sure you find the second edition, which was written in 1849 and called An Outline of the Necessary Laws of Thought. This example is not in the first edition, which he wrote seven years prior. So he was a church English leader. I'm sorry, an English church leader, Archbishop of York starting in 1862, and he had nine kids. That's a lot of children. So, and he still wrote a book. I think he wrote a couple of books, but... So he has this example about Captain Head traveling through the Pampas of South America when his guide suddenly says, oh, a lion. And the the guy's like, Captain Head's like, well, um... What? There's no lion. And then she walks us... He, or author walks us through, okay, he saw the condors. Beneath that, you'd know there's a carcass of something. And if it was jackals or um, what was the other one? Was it hyenas? Jackals or dogs. Yeah. Then the condors would have been down there. But because he knows it's a large beast that would drive the condors away, he knows it's a lion. Yada, yada, yada. It's a lion. And he was able to walk through that process of thought almost unconsciously mm-hmm. to get to the fact that there is a lion. Right. And said, you know, this is the sort of thing that children should go through more or less in every lesson. Tracing of effect from cause or of cause from effect. The comparing of things to find out where they're alike, where they're different, and a conclusion as to the causes or consequences from certain premises. She uses this example in parents and children at some point well the footnote says this example offered by so able a psychologist is so admirable that i venture to quote it more than once well she definitely does because i remember this story coming up in parents and children and i don't remember where or why it's like the the story of the man with the the food that the soldier with the food that says attention yeah you were saying that came up in book three as well yeah like if she's got an analogy that works. Right? May as, well, may as well beat it to death. Who knows? Maybe people haven't heard it yet. Well, here we are spreading the good news. So the next chapter then is the habit of imagining. And she starts off with the sense of the incongruous. She says all their lessons will afford scope for some slight exercise of the children's thinking power. Some more, some less. And the lessons must be judiciously alternated so that the more mechanical efforts succeed, the more strictly intellectual, and that the pleasing exercise of the imagination, again, succeed efforts of reason. So this was interesting. She used the same wording, judiciously alternated, on page 142, when talking about the timetables and the definite work. Oh. So she uses that same phrase, and if the lessons be judiciously alternated, sums first, say, while the brain's quite fresh, and then re- writing or reading or some more or less mechanical exercise by way of rest. So she's, uh, when you say something twice, you emphasize it. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, and here she, here she is talking about it again then, but she's saying that you, you can't just think reason. You, you have to, the, the imagination is the opposite of reason. And so you have to do reason and then imagination. And so while you're 
while you're exercising your imagination, you're letting your exercise of reason rest. Mm -hmm. So she goes in and she talks about Alice in Wonderland a little bit. She calls it a delicious feast of absurdities, which none of us, old or young, could afford to spare. But it's doubtful whether the child who reads it has the delightful imaginings, the realizing of the unknown, with which he reads The Swiss Family Robinson. And she continues, there's a couple of different types of books she mentions here. She's got Alice in Wonderland, which she says is, like you said, a delicious feast of absurdities. Swiss Family Robinson, delightful imaginings. These Christmas books, which she doesn't really go into, but it sounds like they're kind of light reading type yeah. books. And then this Diogenes and the Naughty Boys of Troy is irresistible, but not the sort of thing that the children will live over and over again. So she's laying out a couple of different categories. Mm -hmm. uh, let me sidetrack real quick. Diogenes and the Naughty Boys of Troy is in a book called The Book of Night and Barbara, being a series of stories told to children by David Starr Jordan. It is corrected and illustrated by the children. Nice. So the story is uh, kind of a short story type thing. There's in a big city called Corinth. There's an old man named Diogenes. He didn't live in a regular house, but a big tub, sort of a barrel. So kind of almost talking down, more conversational style. Okay. And it goes on, the bad boys of Corinth rolled him down the hill in his barrel. And then they did it again the next night. And so <laughs> he finally had enough of it. So he got a lot of hooked nails. I'm sorry. He got a lot of big hooked nails and nailed them all over the outside of the tub. And then when the bad boys came to roll him down the hill, their clothes caught in the hooked nails and they went rolling along with the tub and with Diogenes. And when they had gone kabump, kabump, kabump to the bottom of the hill, Diogenes came out of his tub and looked for the bad boys. And there they were, pressed out all flat, just like pancakes. And they weren't much thicker than wallpaper. So Diogenes gathered them up, got some mucilage, and papered the tub inside and out with the flattened out bad boys. Ever since then, the bad boys of Corinth have gone to the other side of the town whenever they wanted to have a little fun. Wow. So, you know, a cute story, but not Robinson Crusoe. Right. Or I'm sorry, not the Swiss family Robinson. Right. Not something where they can dig into it and play out that imagination over and over again. Yeah. With and this pack one. It out. You can roll somebody in a barrel and you can do that and you can have fun with it, but that's the point is you roll someone in a barrel. Well, and you can't roll over someone and flatten them and use them as wallpaper. Yeah, that's true. Although I can think of boys who would try that. There is a pretty good article online from lettersfromnebby.wordpress.com where she talks about this quote and the differences where Lewis Carroll's classic Alice in Wonderland's kind of too far out there, George and Lucy are too normal. They do ordinary things. Where the Swiss Family Robinson's in the middle, it sucks us in because they're ordinary people like us, but in different circumstances, where we can imagine ourselves there and live through the adventures. So Alice is too bizarre, but like Lord of the Rings, it's a fantastical world. But we can imagine ourselves there. Right. And we can play in it. So it, it's a comparison of the different types of books here. Right. In specifically looking at how they affect the imagination of children. Yeah. 
she talks about imagination and the great conceptions. Uh, she says, it's not impossible that posterity may write us down a generation blessed with little imagination and by so far the less capable of great conceptions and heroic efforts. For it is only as we have it in us to let a person or cause fill the whole stage of the mind to the exclusion of the self-occupation that we are capable of large hearted actions on behalf of the person or cause. So she's saying, you know, looking again at, at these two books, the Swiss family Robinson versus uh, George and Lucy. If all you've ever had is George and Lucy, they do mundane things day in, day out, then you don't even have the ability to think about doing something crazy or something insane that would, that would save someone putting yourself in harm's way because, well, the only concept you have is doing normal mundane things. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, backing up a little bit, she says, uh, let them have tales of imaginations, seen laid out in other lands and other times, heroic adventures, hairbreadth escapes, delicious fairy tales in which they're rough, roughly never, never roughly pulled up by the impossible, where all is impossible and they know it and yet believe. So uh, it's just, she's, she's adding on to, to why it's important to have these, these tales and stories of, of daring do. Mm-hmm. So then we move on to uh, Imagination Grows. And she says, Imagination does not descend full grown to take possession of an empty house. Like every other power of the mind, it is the merest germ of a power to begin with. And it grows by what it gets. In childhood, the age of faith is the time for its nourishing. So when the children are young, we need to pour into them so that their imagination can grow, so that they can, so that they can expand their power of imagination so they can imagine things. Mm-hmm. And and this includes in their school lessons, their history, their geography, and it should help cultivate their conceptive powers. They need to be able to live in the times of history, live in those places they're brought to. But, less, but let lessons do their best, and the picture gallery of the imagination is poorly hung if the child have not found his way into the realms of fancy. They can't do that. They can't live in their history book. They can't live in those geography places. If they're not accustomed to doing it and right. transporting themselves to other worlds. Well, and also it goes back to living books. They can't do it if they're reading a dry textbook. Yeah. That only is concerned with dates and numbers and times and places. Mm-hmm. There has to be a story. There has to be something for the imagination to grab hold of. Yep. Uh, she goes on towards thinking and, and how it comes by practice. And we've talked about this a little bit already, but she says thinking like writing or skating comes by practice. The child who has never thought never does think and probably never will think. And there's enough people in the world like that. Yeah, th- there are. <laughs> the child must think, get at the reason why of things for himself every day of his life and more each day than the day before. And she puts forth the suggestion that when the child asks why, you don't answer them immediately. You turn it on them and ask them, well, why do you think that is? And let them puzzle over it before you can give them the answer. Because then they'll remember it because they had to think about it. Right. Well, and then and then you when you tell them why, you can tell them what the train of thought was that got you to that answer. Mm-hmm. And how... And and so you're doing more than just giving them an answer. You're giving them a, a roadmap to find answers. Mm-hmm. So then we move on to chapter five, the habit of remembering. 
And she's, she starts out remembering and recollecting. She says, memory is the storehouse of whatever knowledge we possess. And it is upon the fact of the stores lodged in the memory that we take rank as intelligent beings, i.e. we, we store knowledge we possess. So if we can't store it, we're not intelligent. Yeah. I, I think that's where she, I think that's what she's saying. I think it also, you know, could, to go on one more, it's, it's acting upon that knowledge that has been remembered. That also makes sense. And it, it fits with the rest of what she's talking about. Children learn in order that they may remember. Yeah. And she talks about much of what we've learned and experienced in childhood. We can't reproduce it. And yet it has formed the groundwork of after knowledge. And it grows out of those things that we have learned and known. Yeah. Which, you know, the fact that I can't remember most of my childhood, that gives me comfort in the fact that it's still kind of there. <laughs> it is. Well, and everything, everything you, yeah, everything you are is built upon those experiences. Whether or not they are specific memories, I can, I can pull up as a picture. Right. So, she, and it seems to me that she breaks remembering in down into three categories here and correct me if you think I'm wrong. We've got the first cap category, which is sunk capital. She says, uh, it's our sunk capital of which we enjoy the interest though we are unable to realize. So these are your, your old memories that, that oh, okay. you can't remember them, but they're there, but they influence you. So that's the first one. The second one is our available capital. We can re we can reproduce, recollect upon demand. So these are the memories that you can remember. And then the third category is the spurious memory. Facts and ideas float into the brain and really don't become a part of it. Mm -hmm. And her example is when the schoolboy crams for an examination, writes down what he has thus learned, and behold, it is gone from his gaze forever. They cram, and then as Ruskin puts it, which I don't want to steal your thunder, but... It's John Ruskin. We've talked about him. Many times. All right. So as he puts it, they cram to pass and not to know. They do pass and they don't know. So that's the spurious memory. Which has its place. And, and this is like short-term memory. Right. Where you are able to remember something and then do it and then it be gone. And and she gives the example of the lawyer, the schoolboy, the publisher. And I've also heard, you know actors who do this you know where they know they can remember their very first one that they did because they committed that one into memory huh. because it was so much a part of they were they were working at it so hard but as time goes on they commit it into this spurious memory their short-term memory so they can perform it and they can do it appropriately but they are also capable of forgetting it interesting so that they can, you know, space, have space for more. Sure. Interesting. And I'm, I'm, I, I do this. I have, I have a verse that I know, I'm not going to quote it right now because not do it very well, but there's a verse that I learned, my, like one of my very first Awana verses that's stuck in my mind and everything else is kind of not there anymore hmm. because I, I memorized it to pass and I did pass and I don't know. Yeah, that's true. So, so those are, those are her three types of memory, the sunk capital, I'm sorry, three types of remembering the sunk capital, 
the available capital and the spurious, mm-hmm. which I thought I thought it was interesting to break it down into into three distinct types of memory. So then we get into science of memory, right? Then we get into the science of memory, and I think here she asks three questions. She asks and answers three questions. So the questions are: How do we come to remember? Secondly, how do we gain the power to utilize remembered facts or recollect? And then the third question is a bit longer. And under what conditions is knowledge acquired that neither goes to the growth of the brain and mind, nor is available on demand, but is lightly lodged in the brain for some short period and then is evacuated at a single throw? So how do we do spurious spurious memory? Right. So how, how how do we have sunk capital? Or how do we gain sunk capital? How do we gain available capital? And how do we gain spurious memories? Okay. So three three types of memories and how do you get them? So the first answer, uh, she is pretty, pretty quick. She kind of dives in and dives right back out. She says, the function of the brain called memory, whereby the impressions received by the brain are recorded mechanically, or at least that's the theory. That is, the mind takes cognizance of certain facts and the nerve substance of the brain records that cognizance. And I, I think that's the answer to the first question, that it just kind of happens. Mechanically. Mechanically. And you don't really have to do anything. It just happens. And she goes into a little bit more detail about what the conditions are for that to happen. And does it become permanent? And it, she says, you know, any object or idea which is regarded with attention makes the sort of impression on the brain, which is said to fix it in the memory. And we do this with a common expression. This sight or the sound or the sensation made a strong impression on me. She says, you know, that's actually what literally happens in the brain. Mm -hmm. Made an impression. Do you want the child to remember? Then secure his whole attention, the fixed gaze of his mind, as it were, upon the fact to be remembered. And then he will have it. By a sort of photographic process, that fact or idea is taken by his brain. And when he's an old man, perhaps, the memory of it will flash across him. Yeah. And and I think that's that's the answer to the second one is so so sunk capital, well, it just kind of happens. The available capital, you gotta pay attention. Mm-hmm. You gotta pay attention while you're learning it. The the first one's more of the atmosphere memories. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Because we talked about because right now we're talking about the, the the thinking habits, the group of mental habits affected by direct training, as opposed to the habits inspired in the home atmosphere, which come by example. So those ones by example kind of exist in your sunk capital memory. Right. I could see that, where it's just kind of the experiences that, that happen that shape you. Mm-hmm. So, so after talking about paying attention, she moves into recollection and the law of associations. And this is something that we've talked about already any number of times. It's something that I think Charlotte Mason is fond of. And I think it's something that she thinks is very important, is making those associations and connections. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing we'll get into it more in part five, chapter nine, the art of narrating, because that's that's the word that she uses in her education lessons is when you narrate something back Ah. is when you pull it up out of that from having paid attention you pull it up and recall it at will interesting and so 
this one was written earlier and the the there's only 18 oh my goodness principles. principles there's only 18 principles in this one in book 6 where she kind of sums up again everything mm-hmm. there are 20 principles they're reordered and narration is added interesting so that's one of the differences in the two lists of principles is narration gets added mm-hmm. wow so it becomes a principle Mm-hmm. Not just a part of things. Yeah, uh, it holds a high place. Yeah. So I don't have I don't really have anything to bring up here with the recollection and the law of association. Well, she talks about the fact that you want to fix your attention for each lesson, but also link it to the last, so you can't recall one without the other following in its train. And she specifically uses learning French. So yes, you can have the person learn the verb avoir. And he will remember it. But you don't want him to just know words. You want him to know French and be able to speak French. So you have to grow upon each of these pieces of knowledge. And one of the things that's kind of, it's not a term that she used, but it's a term that's come about is the term scaffolding, where you, as you're erecting Uh. the building of knowledge, you do have these pieces in place on the outside to help build up that that knowledge and the scaffolding will be taken away but as as you're going you can build up to help them remember and help them link those things together interesting this is to make practical use of that law of association of ideas of which one would not willingly become the sport and it is the neglect of this law which invalidates much good teaching the teacher is content to produce a solitary impression which is only recalled when, as it is acted upon by a chance suggestion. Whereas he should forge the links of a chain to draw his bucket out of the well. And this is, it's very interesting to think about this in conjunction with the fact that she despises unit studies. And, and it, again, in her principles, she talks about the Herbatian theories, the Herbatian doctrine, where... The preparation of the knowledge and enticing morsels presented in due order and the it's the stresses upon the teacher. But she's not saying that that connection of due order and morsels is not good. It's that the teacher prepares it. And as she says, the child needs to have those be making those connections. Interesting. So that's that's what I see. That's what I hear. I yeah that that sounds good to me and, and it's a it's a there is a fault in the teacher where they just pull out one thing at a time, right? Where they don't allow that chain to be forged by the child, they just bring out individual things. And well, Doctor, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I, I was going to say, or even or even bring out individual things with no thought of how they do relate. Mm-hmm. So you can't even. There, there is no form. There, there is no relation between the one lesson and the next. They're just, they're just doing this one and then that one and then that one, and they're three separate things because we have to do these three things: mm-hmm. math, history, writing. Well, well, and, and it's again not where you're forcing those connections, but they are there. But they're there. And and so it seems to me that the teacher has to be cognizant of the connections that could be there. Mm-hmm. Not to not to pressure those and push those on the child, but 
at least at the at the very least to be aware that they are there mm-hmm. and be able to use that to teach the child. Well, moving on to the next section or the next little um, section, every lesson must recall the last. Let every lesson gain the child's entire attention and let each new lesson be so interlaced with the last that the one must recall the other. That again recalls the one before it and so on to the beginning. I wonder here, and maybe you can answer this for me, and it might be a dumb question, but that's okay. Is she talking about each lesson in a given subject, like your your math lessons, one follows the other and it builds on itself? Or is she talking each each lesson? Uh, the math be interlaced with the history, be interlaced with the reading? Yeah. I don't know. Because it... My guess is by subject. But I do know, and we'll be diving into lessons as instruments of education in a little bit. But I do know that after year one, after form 1B, which was the the child's first year when they're getting their feet wet, then the history and the literature are put together in the forms. And a form is about three years. So for the first year, you do, it's, it's a set year. That year is the same every year for the new children. But then the next two years of Form 1, the history and the literature are linked. And then the next three years of Form 2, the history and the literature are linked. So that regardless of what cycle you come in on, you're linking your history and your literature. Interesting. Because it it makes – I can see it both ways. I can see one – I mean, you know, I I did math my entire life, math and science – those things have to build on one another. You don't get to, we were talking about it earlier with the kids. You don't get to multiplication without addition, mm-hmm. but addition is just a, a, a multiplication is just, yeah, I'm sorry. Multiplication is just addition by group mm-hmm. and it's a simplified method of addition. Well, subtraction is just the opposite of addition and division is just the opposite of multiplication. And the same is true when you get into calculus and differential equations and integral equations. Which, tangent, I think is one of the failings of today's math is that you don't build those blocks solidly enough, early enough, so that children are left behind, even if they superficially know it. Well, and they're not treated as as building blocks. Or anyway, I I can't speak to that. I don't I don't know what the what the math curriculum I I can't even tell you what it was like when I was in high school. Didn't you do Saxon? I did Saxon. Okay. Which Saxon is notorious for beating beating these things into your brain because you have to do like 50 to 100 problems every day. And half of them are the lesson that you just did. And the other half are the lessons that you did over the last six months. Yeah. It's, it's painful, but it makes a point. So, you know, I, I can see how math and science build on one another and grow on one another. At the same time, I could see how how she could be talking about interdisciplinary stuff where you're talking about history and then, and then you go over to, to math and then you go to art. And as you're going through the day, all of those things still connect in, in one way or the other. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Okay. Although here's a plug in part five, we have a lot of guest speakers coming on. I'm very excited about this because we get to talk with somebody who's done it and who 
they know a little bit more than we do. That's true. So I'm going to keep that question in mind as we start talking to these people. You should. I will. So uh, we'll go ahead and move on then. She says there's no limit to the recording power of the brain. And I think here's where we get into the answer of her, of the third question of how do you have that spurious memory? And she says the child gets his exercise by heart, sets it off like a parrot and behold, it's gone. There's no record of it upon the brain at all. To secure such a record, there must be time, time for that full gaze of the mind we call attention and for the growth of the brain tissue to the new idea. Given these conditions, there appears to be no limit of quantity to the recording power of the brain. This is one of the reasons that she advocates for short lessons, so that the afternoons are free for the mind to think about these things. Yeah. So you're so you're not bogging your mind down all day mm-hmm. with these with these things. She does give one exception. She gives the exception of language. When you learn a language as a child and then never use it, by the time you reach grandmotherhood, grandmotherhood, your skills with that language are are next to nothing because mm-hmm. you just haven't used it and it goes away. The paths should have been kept open by frequent goings and comings. So that's the one exception that she gives is language. If you don't use it, you do end up losing it. To acquire any knowledge or power whatsoever, and then to leave it to grow rusty in a neglected corner of the brain is practically useless. Where there is no chain of association to draw the bucket out of the well, it is all the same as if there were no water there. As to how to form these links, every subject will suggest a suitable method. There you go. Each by subject. She answers the question (laughs) right here. (laughs) Oh, wow. Maybe I should have just kind of read ahead a little bit. Oh. That's funny. Well, backing up just a little bit, let's see. She says, to acquire any knowledge or power whatsoever and then to leave it to grow rusty in a neglected corner of the brain is useless. Welcome to my college education. What? You mean you're not talking about micro semiconductors at all in your work? Well, one, I don't know what that is because that's not a thing. Whatever. But <laughs> I tried to use it big words. You, I mean, you put three words together that... Is that seriously not a thing? Well, a semiconductor is a thing, but micro is just saying it's a small semiconductor. Okay. Is that not a thing? No, it's not a thing. Oh. But a semiconductor is a thing. Hey, at least they make sense together. Okay. But, uh, you know, I, I talked I talked uh, in the in the last... One about the intern that sits behind me. Well, he's over there doing calculus and integrals and stuff. And I'm going, oh, yeah, I used to know how to do that. I don't remember the last time I did a differential equation. So, yeah, that's uh, that's my college education. Practically useless. Woo. She has a water analogy again. She does. And again, she talks about Switzerland and Holland. And the one is linked to the other by the very fact that they have nothing in common. Which I don't understand. I don't get that. If they have nothing in common, then they're not linked. <laughs> I just The association will be one of similarity, not of contrasts. And in our experience, colors, places, sounds, odors help recall persons or events, but sensuous order or sensuous things like that can't be employed in education very easily. Yeah. They have the link has to be where they're associated. The link between any two things must be found in the nature of the things associated. So their countries, Holland and Switzerland, 
I don't, I don't know where she went with that example. I really don't know. I, I think what she's saying is that if you're going to, I think she's, she's showing the example of just jumping around doing random things. Today, we're going to learn about Nigeria. Tomorrow, we're going to learn about Switzerland. After that, we're going to learn about China. What's oh, similar okay, about okay. these so things? She's giving an example of what you should not do. You shouldn't do. do. Because what it what would make sense is all right, we're gonna do whales today. Never mind, I'm gonna give an example I actually know things about. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna talk about Virginia today, because I don't know what sits next to whales. And then after Virginia, we're gonna talk about Maryland, because Maryland is right next to Virginia. And then we can talk about West Virginia, because that also borders. Pretty You're laughing sure at Wales me. is an island. I'm pretty sure Wales is a part. Okay, we're looking at this up right now. Great Britain. I'm pretty sure Ireland is an island. Oh, Wales. Wales is a part of the island, the British Isles, you might say. I was wrong. Yeah. The Isle of Man is an island. There's a very famous motorcycle race that goes around the Isle of Man where people ride at breakneck speeds. It's insane. Anyway. Now I'm lost. Virginia, West Virginia. Right. So so those things those things do relate. It makes me Okay, so let's see. Where's So Switzerland's right there. And Holland is I mean they're Switzerland is mountain locked and the Netherlands is like is a is a port. Yeah. It's a it's a sea a seaside country. I mean, you could go Netherlands, Germany, Switzerland and you know, at least you went somewhere or Virginia, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina. I can't remember what's on top of Maryland off the top of my head. Is that New York, Pennsylvania? So, so, I mean, you can do those things, but, but you wouldn't just go Netherlands, Switzerland, Greece. They're, they're countries, they're places. Maine, Florida, uh, Arizona. Sure. <laughs> like they're states, but what do they have in common? Mm-hmm. So I think I think that's where she was going with that example is this is an example of what not to do because there's nothing in common here. I think she gave a negative example. I missed that. I thought it was a positive example. I missed it too until I started thinking about it when you said it. And those are the habits we're going to talk about today. That's it. Next Stay time, tuned for more next Yeah, time. next time we're going to come back with the habit of perfect execution, which is something I'm awesome at. And then we're going to talk some talk about some moral habits. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm kind of excited about that, and that'll be good. Thanks for hanging out. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening. Join the conversation with us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter.